we're blessed today to have Mr. Drew Harrison bring in the word for us. I'm going to invite Drew up. This is a real honor and a blessing for me uh, to sit under his teaching and hear what he has to say. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to Drew. So well, let's go ahead and start in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this family of believers. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and share your word, share the insights that you have shown to me and help me to speak your words today. Help, uh, help the things that are heard, the things that are learned, be the things that you would have people learn and hear, um, and help us to grow uh, as a family of believers uh, and as a church. Amen. Okay, so um, just to point out real quick, this is not a glitch. That B is supposed to be sideways. Um, because I'm kind of piggybacking off of the series that we just finished in 1 Corinthians where we were talking about being the church. And I thought it'd be kind of cute and tongue-in-cheek to be called this sermon, Weeing the Church. Um, and I did not think about all of the middle school um, implications of that. But we're just going to go from there. Um, because 1 Corinthians was really all about uh, this, this build, this arc of 1 Corinthians, which was uh, really interesting to me that we had the first 12 chapters were all about the brokenness of misplaced love. The way that the church loved each other and the way that the church lived together was broken in the way that they interacted, and that was kind of what the first 12 chapters were about, fixing that brokenness because of the focal point of the book, chapter 13, which was the definition of love and how we are supposed to love each other, and then wrapping up in the example and application of that love. And the whole point of having a good understanding of love in the whole arc of 1 Corinthians is kingdom-focused. It's about building the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love here, by inviting more and more people into the body and making ourselves a good representation of what it means to love and to be loved. And that's also kind of through the whole adoption thing. As Christians, we are adopted into God's kingdom, into God's family. And that's really kind of the thing that I'm going to focus on. That being the church is, first and foremost, yes, uh, being focused on this agape that 1 Corinthians was really focused on, this unconditional forgiving love that is expanded to all people that will listen and hear the word. But as Christians, we are also called to experience Phileo, which I'm going to get into defining uh, as we go. We are, we, are def we are called to build this kinship, build this brotherhood between believers. And I'm going to, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit, but if you want to open up to 1 Thessalonians 4, that's going to be our kind of focal point that we're going to kind of center our conversation around. So 1 Thessalonians 4 9 through 12 is kind of going to be like our main focus, the crux of what we're going to be going through. So, about brotherly love, you do not need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this towards all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. And we're going to come back to verses 11 and 12 in just a second. But the word here for brotherly love is Philadelphus, 
uh, or phileo, and whenever it's used to address people, address the brothers, it's the word adelphos. And Philadelphia's or phileo love is brotherly love, which is demonstrative uh, and familial service, this kinship or brotherly affection within the body. It's translated brother, the word adelphos is translated brother, so anytime that Paul says brothers this or brothers that, uh, it's not necessarily referring to like brothers in terms of the gender, but it's much more about the relationship. It's about people who are part of the body of Christ, part of the family of Christ. And so I'm going to say Adelphos because I feel like translating it brothers and sisters is shilling a little bit for modern movements, um, trying to change the, what the word is actually saying. But the word does translate as brothers and sisters pretty nicely. But Adelphos is that relationship, that brotherhood, that kinship between believers. And phileo in the Greek and Roman world would be focused on not just a biological relationship. Phileo would speak to a very, very deep relationship, like two brothers in arms who were going to war together and needed to trust each other implicitly as they were on the battlefield. Or two brothers in politics in this backstabbing Roman world where people needed to trust this other person. And this deep kinship and trust and relationship that goes much, much deeper than uh, a biological brotherhood would actually require, a biological Adelphos um, would, would necessarily mean. And the verse 10 where he talks about, in fact, you're doing this towards all of the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia, to all of the Adelphos in the region of Macedonia. It's the ideal. He's, demonstrate, he's talking about how this ideal of brotherly love is the goal for the entirety of the church. And Thessalonians is doing this almost perfectly. Uh, and he calls them to grow more and more in this love. And we're going to kind of break down this idea of Philadelphia into three different kind of categories, three different modes of Adelphos. There's your own behavior, how you relate to, uh, how you behave, how you live. And then we're going to talk about how you can encourage other believers, encourage your Adelphos in different ways. And we're going to talk about how you can challenge believers, challenge your brothers, challenge your sisters whenever they start to stumble in their faith. And so continuing in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to talk about what the behavior of a believer should look like. We encourage you, brothers and sisters, do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you. So a quiet life means to be quiet, to be still, to be peaceful, to not be busy, to settle, and to live humbly like what you would want in an apartment neighbor. You don't want somebody who's banging on the floors all the time, who's up till three in the morning playing their sousaphone or anything like that. You want someone who is living a peaceful and quiet life and is a good neighbor who comes down and gives you food sometimes if you're having a bad day or someone who will listen to you. You want someone like that. Um, you also, we're also told to mind our own affairs, seek after our own business. So that means taking care of our own issues first. We, there's the classic story of Christ whenever he is talking about how to deal with another person's sin. You can't see clearly to take out the other person's speck until you take the log out of your own eye. You need to take the log out of your eye before you can start speaking into other people's 
lives. And that doesn't mean that you don't look after the speck in your brother's eye. That is something that we are called to do, but we're going to come back to that. And then work diligently. Christians are to be productive. We aren't supposed to kind of sit on our hands and wait for Jesus to come back and take us out of this messy world. We're told to live in this world and make it a better place. And the reason for that is not only so that we can serve the brothers, but also so that we may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Christians are not called to be charity cases. We definitely want to live and be able to support people who are out on missions, but if you are able to work, we are called to work and to support ourselves so that when the world looks at us, they don't see a bunch of lazy bums eating donuts on Sunday mornings. They see someone who is out and working in the world. And kind of to follow along with this, the, the whole leader initiation, it sounded kind of cultish, we're going to jump over to 1 Timothy 3. Um, and you guys don't have to flip to all of these passages. I'm jumping around a lot. I know. I'm not cherry-picking, I promise. But feel free to follow along, write down the, mess- the passages, look them up later. But the first half of first paragraph in 1 Timothy 3 is the qualifications for an overseer, qualifications for an elder or a leader in the church. Um, but verses 8 through 12 are about deacons. And deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect. And the word deacon here literally means servant. An overseer means one who looks over. A servant is, a, a deacon is one who gets in there and works and serves. Not to say that overseers aren't supposed to get in there and serve, but a deacon's primary function is to get in and serve, specifically one who serves on or behalf of the church. And the word deacon has a lot of baggage, I think, in our current culture, where a lot of churches have very stringent, you are a deacon and you do the things that a deacon is told to do. You are a greeter. You are in charge of, the, in charge of this. And that's not wrong. Deacons do have specific roles, but in one sense of the word, I think all Christians are called to be deacons in one way or another. We're all called to serve. And so I think that these qualifications for deacons are things that we should all strive to on a daily basis, uh, even, more than, even more than some of the more stringent qualifications of an overseer. And I really like this because it really parallels the same kind of thoughts as 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, those same three things that all Christians are supposed to do to excel in brotherly love, those same ideas. Verse 11, uh, verse 8 talks about, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money. And those ideas are very much a peaceful and quiet life. If you're hypocritical, if you're drinking a lot of wine, if you're spending a lot of money, that's not peaceful or quiet, that's loud and boisterous. And that's not what we're called to do. In verse 11, we're going to come back to verses 9 and 10. Verse 11, wives too must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, which is to mind your own affairs. You shouldn't be getting and meddling and looking at other people's business before your own business is taken care of. Deacons should have their own children and their own households managed competently. Again, a peaceful and quiet life. And for those who have served well as deacons, acquire a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. For those who have served well, for those who have worked hard, for those who have worked diligently. And verses 9 and 10 is the distinction, I think, between the First Thessalonians passage and the uh, First Timothy passage. 
Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. And so the distinction between a deacon and someone who is serving in brotherly love is someone who holds strongly to the faith and who has a solid foundation in their faith beyond just being a Christian, who has a deep understanding of their own faith and also is relatively blameless in, uh, in the way that they live. Obviously, we can't earthly be perfectly blameless, but through the eyes of Christ and through our process of sanctification, we can begin to move that way, and that is the calling for a deacon. And I think this, this whole behavior passage, this whole how are we supposed to live, how are we supposed to serve, is, is kind of pretty explicitly stated here, acquire a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is Christ Jesus. And kind of tying back to that whole idea in 1 Corinthians where it talks about how we're supposed to love well so that we will be seen well by outsiders. Going back to that kingdom idea that if we live well and love well in the way that we actually behave, then that will show that Christianity does give you a way to live that is better and creates uh, a better community than maybe can be found in other places that can't be found without uh, the love and adoption of Christ. And so really the goal for this whole phileo, this whole behavior, is to live in harmony with other believers. That's the goal here, is to live in harmony with other believers, to be able to live peacefully and serve them and, and all of that. And behavior is really how you behave, to live peaceably, avoid meddling, work hard, and that doesn't necessarily inherently require community. There's this idea of service that is implicit in that, but you can live a quiet life and not meddle and work hard without really involving yourself in a community. And I think that the, the next step in demonstrating phileo is this idea of encouragement. Encouragement and service pushes us outside of our own self-interest to really build and experience Phileo. And jumping again, we're going to go over to Ephesians 5, 19 and 21. And this is kind of a turning point in the whole passage, uh, in the whole book of Ephesians. The first large part of Ephesians is just kind of explaining how wonderful the body of Christ is and how wonderful the, the gospel really is. And in verse 21, which we'll get to in a second, it really switches to more practical. What does that actually look like to love others well and to be unified well? So in terms of encouragement, verse 19 tells us to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so there's a number of different ways that we can encourage people. We can encourage people through praise and worship, which we get to do every morning. But there's more times than that. We can send songs to one another if someone's going through a hard time. We can put a certain song on the radio whenever someone's feeling down. My mom loves the song, uh, Not Home Yet, by Building 429. I can't remember exactly the name of the band. But she loves that song. And so anytime that we're in the car and I'm flipping through music... <laughs> Sometimes we'll just put on that song to give her a little bit of encouragement. And that in community aspect of bringing people together through praise and worship is super 
super important and, and is seen throughout all of Scripture. We have the longest book in the Bible is a book about songs. God loves music and God loves his people singing together. And this idea of thankfulness is also super important. It's seen every single time in Scripture. Every single, every single one of the epistles has at least one significant paragraph just with Paul thanking God for the existence of this church. This gratefulness for the existence of your fellow believers is something that is super encouraging and something that we can do pretty easily. Just thank you for existing today. Is, it's not, it sounds like a little thing and it sounds a little weird, but it is something that sometimes we need to hear. Sometimes existing doesn't feel like a blessing to others. And so it's a good thing to hear. Thank you for existing. Thank you for being here. And this verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And we're going to come back to this whenever we talk about challenging as well. Um, but that is the f- tipping point from worship and, and beauty of the gospel and what it actually means. If you read on, it talks about how uh, you're, you can submit in your marriage, how you can submit in your family, how you can submit in your, in your work, and how you can submit to the Lord in terms of spiritual, spiritual warfare. And kind of implicitly in that whole passage is this idea of submitting to each other, which really allows us the opportunity to encourage one another through prayer, through praise, through gratefulness. Um, And jumping over to James, (laughs) going on a merry little jaunt through the epistles. James 13 through 18 is where we're going to land for a few minutes. Well, 13 through 20, but 13 through 18 first. Is anyone among you suffering? I love this passage, by the way. It's so beautiful, the way that he calls us into community. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save a sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person person is very powerful in its effect. And just kind of sitting on that idea of praying for and with one another, praising with and for one another is, is really beautiful how that, uh, that, that Adelphos relationship can blossom just through praying together. It doesn't have to be deep and theological. It can just be, oh, you're sick? I'm going to pray for you. Oh, you're feeling down? I'm going to pray for you. Oh, you're having a great day? Let me, let me praise. Let me sing a song with you. That might be a little weird. Don't do that. <laughs> or do it. It's fun. Just sing a song about how great um, God is in this, in this community of believers. And verse 16, I think, is something that we we tend to shy away from. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This idea of confession and what we like to refer to as accountability, I think. A lot of times we use the word accountability because confession has a very Catholic vibe to it. We aren't talking about going to a confession booth so that you may be healed. We're talking about talking to your fellow believers so that you can actually unpack what is happening in your life, talking about your sins, talking about the way that you are struggling. And that that brings release, that brings healing through prayer, through fellowship, 
and it also allows people to build deeper relationships. That vulnerability that comes from confession, that comes through accountability, can't really be gained in any other way. Until you share your brokenness with another person, they are not going to share their brokenness with you. And so to, to be able to step out of that brokenness together requires you to be vulnerable, to, to risk something in that relationship. And that whole submission idea from Ephesians is kind of echoed here. Submitting yourself, lowering yourself, humbling yourself in front of your fellow believers so that they can help raise you up and, and bring you into that, deeper into that kingdom relationship of adoption and kinship with the Lord. And finally, and this is something we're going to, that, that we're going to see a lot in the challenging um, passages as well, is that uh, in 1718, uh, Elisha was a human, as are we, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. To keep on, that's really the core idea of the, the distinction between encouragement and challenge or uh, confrontation, to use a stronger word, is the idea of keeping on. Encouragement is about helping someone continue in their relationship with the Lord, helping them push forward in the struggles that they are having, push forward through the struggles that they are having, through prayer, through praise, accountability, perseverance, and humility. And kind of tying this, this whole encouragement idea back to our our, uh, our talks in 1 Corinthians, a significant portion of 1 Corinthians was all about the gifts of the Spirit and how those are actually used in the body. And they're used to encourage the, the body of believers, encourage the family of believers to build each other up through praise, through the gifts of prophecy, through the gifts of tongues, through the gifts of encouragement. Encouragement is a spiritual gift that we have through the Holy Spirit. And exercising those gifts is not only just a way to build one another up, but to also drive us deeper into our relationship with Christ. And continuing in uh, James and kind of carrying the thought into the idea of challenging our fellow believers is uh, is 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if any one of you strays from the church, truth, and someone turns him back, Let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Full confession, I struggle, I sin, I turn from the way that I'm supposed to go. And if if any one of you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know. When, when someone strays from the faith, if someone strays from the faith, we have a responsibility as believers to challenge them. We have, to, we have a responsibility to challenge the sins of our Adelphos, our brothers, our sisters, our, our, kin, our kinsmen in Christ. And there is this great promise here in verse 20 that if we challenge and confront struggles, we, can, we reap a twofold reward. We both get to save our Adelphos from death, save our brother, save um, the one who's struggling from death, and we also get to cover over, help cover over a multitude of sins because those sins that we're helping turn them away from are the sins that Christ is covering with his blood and Christ is covering with his sacrifice. And a note here that this is supposed to come from a place of agape and phileo. It's supposed to come from a place of love, not from a place 
of condemnation, not from a place of arrogance, which is why that idea of submission and humbling yourself, living a quiet life from our behavior, if we live a quiet life, we are humble, and if we submit ourselves one to another in this mutual um, humbling of ourselves, that gives us the, the capacity to truly speak to someone in their moments of struggle. And uh, one more time, jumping over to Hebrews 10, which I probably quite a few of you guys leapt to this passage whenever I talked about challenging a brother uh, in your minds. So verses 19 through 25. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the boldness to enter through the sanctuary, enter the sanctuary through the blood of Christ, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart full of assurance and of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And so for that first bit, it's that same encouragement strain. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging the brothers in continuing in their faith because they have a great high priest. We have a great high priest in Christ. And then he changes, he switches tacks a little bit in verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So provoke here is a word, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, so forgive me. I, I love words. I'm a bit obsessed with ner- words. I might have received a couple thesauruses as birthday presents. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The word provoke here, uh, a lot of times it's tr- translated as spur. One of the translations used the word promote, which I thoroughly disagree with. But the word is what we get the word paroxysmal from which I assume none of you know what it is because I certainly did not before, <laughs> before I started studying this. And paroxysmal means a sudden attack or violent intensification of emotion, expression, or symptom. The literal translation of the word, of the Greek word, is to be beyond sharpen or to be beyond the ultimate sharpness. It is not a gentle concept. It is not a soft word. It's not like, oh, come on, we can, we can do better than that. I'm sure we can do better than that. It's casting out uh, people in, in the temple and, and addressing the sins of people. The story of the woman at the well, whenever she came and said, I'm not married, and he's, Jesus is like, yep, you're not married, and you're doing some things pretty wrong here. That was paroxysmal. He's calling it directly what it is. We are, we are called to speak in love, but we are not called to mince words. We are called to speak the truth in love, but that love doesn't need to be tempered by wishy-washy language. We need to call sin what it is and then encourage people to turn from that sin in order to, not so that they will stop sinning, Like, that's almost a side effect here. The goal is to promote, provoke, to spur one another on, to build each other up towards love and good deeds, to build one another up to demonstrating what the kingdom looks like through the way that we live. And so the ideal for this whole idea of challenging is to call out sin, to provoke one another towards godliness, 
And I think this is something that a lot of times we struggle with, just in general, is we, we look for ways to change something without replacing something. So if we want to change the way that we live, sometimes we'll just say, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop overeating. I'm going to stop playing too many video games or watching too many movies or listening to bad music. And if we just stop something, then we aren't going to grow. We're going to just stagnate at best. Most of the time, we're going to go back into that cycle because we haven't replaced it with something. In order for us to really grow, we have to replace it with something. So if we're listening to bad music, we have to replace it with wholesome, uplifting music. If we're living in bad community, we can't just stop having community. We have to find a community that is helpful and is uplifting. We have to replace this broken with the things that are whole, which is why it says, it doesn't say provoke one another to stop being bad. It says provoke one another toward love and good deeds. And that idea of don't stop fellowshipping, do not give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. And this idea of family in 1 Timothy 5, it talks about treat older men as fathers, treat younger men as brothers, treat older women as mothers, treat younger women as sisters, and sons and daughters by proxy as well. Um, this family mindset at Family Bible Church creates a space for mentorship between spiritual generations. If you see someone as a father figure, then you're more likely to listen to the advice that they have. If you see someone as a brother or a sister, you can actually enjoy the fellowship and not see them as an other, as, as another person that goes to my church. They are a brother of mine. They are a brother in Christ. They are my kinsman in Christ. And that beauty in relationship allows us to see the gospel kind of in action. It's a little bit of a preview. A little bit farther in that First Thessalonians passage, it talks about, I don't want you to be discouraged because Christ is coming again and we will be together with him, worshiping with him in paradise. And so this, this fellowship of believers, this kinship of believers, this Adelphos relationship is really a preview to some extent of what the eternal kingdom of God is going to look like. This continual fellowship with each other and with God. So really living the kingdom of God as adopted sons requires us to demonstrate love through our behavior, through our encouragement, and through our correction of our Adelphos. And so, because I felt weird not having a sermon without applications, I have, I have three questions, one for each of the different categories. Are you leading a peaceful and quiet life? Is your life loud? Is it noisy? Are you the sousaphone next-door neighbor? Or are you the next-door neighbor that kind of just chills out and invites your neighbors over for coffee or something like that? Who, who leads a peaceful and quiet life? Are you humble in the way that you live? How are you encouraging your Adelphos through prayer, confession, perseverance, and humility? How are you encouraging people to keep on in the way that they are doing? Keep on in the good things that they are doing so that they can grow. How are you humbling yourself through confession so that you can then be encouraged? And finally, are you avoiding the confrontation of sin? Are you avoiding calling out the sin of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if you are, or if you aren't to an extreme degree, 
How can you spur your Adolphos, your brothers and sisters in Christ, towards love and good deeds? And kind of to tag on to that, are you listening to the correction of others? Are you listening to, to the people that are trying to spur you on to love and good deeds? Or are you in a place of arrogance, pushing them aside? That submission comes from both sides. You have to speak from humility, but you also need to listen from humility. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this family. Thank you for the ultimate definition of family, of living together in harmony, living together in peace, um, so that we can encourage one another and, and spur one another on towards being your church, your kingdom, your family, your body on earth. Help us to remember the eternal impact of the way that we live. Help us to um, remember the eternal souls of the people that are around us. Help us to remember that we never meet with a mere mortal, that everyone around us is ultimately an eternal being, one made in your image. And that, in a way, goes almost doubly for the people that are of your body, that are of your church, that we are to seek to serve them with true love in so many ways. Here I pray. Amen.